Hi all, Thomas here. Just a quick disclaimer. Now, most of you will probably know that the show was on hiatus for quite a while. During that hiatus, I wasn't doing nothing for the show. Where I could, I was working on some episodes. And one of the series that I worked on was one called Technology, Inequality and Catastrophic Risks. And it brings together some of the themes that we've talked about in this show, how technology will influence society, how we can respond to global catastrophic risks. Um, These episodes were scripted before the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I've decided that the best way to deal with this is to just release them as they were um, without modifying anything or changing them now. And then at the end, I will look at how some of these predictions and uh, influences and ideas might relate to our current situation. Um, So what you're getting really is a snapshot of a year or so ago when I first started working on these. And uh, hopefully, you know, you find it enlightening and can enjoy it. Okay. Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction. So far we've talked about the inevitable and growing use of algorithms to sift through data and make recommendations. This is a trend for governments, corporations, and part of it is just a function of the scale of society, the scale of the decision making that needs to be done, and the scale of the data that's being generated that just can't be picked through by humans. Mark Zuckerberg recently testified before Congress, and the solution to virtually every problem that was identified with Facebook when it came to the fake news scandal, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, was more AI, more algorithms, more ways of processing that data artificially um, that could filter content, that kind of thing. Even when a lot of what people were mad about was Facebook's algorithm sorting people into filter bubbles, echo chambers, and allowing for targeted propaganda and misinformation to spread among certain groups unchecked. But on a certain scale, the algorithms are an easier response that at least gives the illusion that decisions are being made to the best of anyone's ability. Here, though, the discriminatory effects of algorithmic decision-making have mostly been side effects. What becomes more scary is when that discrimination is the purpose of the algorithm. So there have been rumblings for years that China is thinking of implementing a social credit score system. They're already rolling out types of this scheme in cities like Rongcheng. Now, this this is quite a complex issue that is uh, complicated further by the fact that different jurisdictions are trying different versions of the scheme, but clearly it's an idea that the high-ups in China think is an interesting one from the political perspective. And uh, the basic idea is more or less the following. If you do things that help the community, like charity work, you gain points. If you do things that are a drain on the community, like littering or parking tickets, you lose them. If you are drunk driving, for example, you go straight down to the bottom of the hierarchy. And then there's going to be a point to the score, which is that if you have a high social credit score, you'll get preferential treatment. That might be better, cheaper access to government facilities. It could be better terms on loans from the bank. It could be more chance to get employed by the government. Or alternatively, in an early pilot scheme of this idea in 2010, for example, people with high scores were fast-tracked for promotion, while people with low scores were the first to be fired when uh, governments or companies needed to economise. So there's no single universal credit score that's already deployed across China, and there's a lot of misreporting around this issue. Um, It's still in the development and testing phase with all these different pilot schemes in different regions with different scoring systems that can make things complicated. But they all amount to the same fundamental idea. Do well and you will be rewarded. Be a bad citizen and you will be punished. 
On the surface, of course, you might actually like the idea that there is some mechanism to enforce karma. Um, I'm a lifelong pedestrian. The idea that people who skip red lights will lose points in some vast bureaucracy of citizenship, that's somewhat pleasing. The idea that people who uh, make money through price gouging or other things, or who steal, lie, and so forth, all of this kind of thing, there is a desire to see these people punished in some way or another. Maybe it would encourage better behaviour, and you can find plenty of people living under these pilot schemes who report positively that people are behaving more courteously. Now, of course, you have to leave aside there the whole philosophical argument about whether it makes a difference if people are being kind because they have empathy or because they fear punishment from some divine authority. Um, one woman who wished to remain anonymous interviewed on this was quoted as saying, I trust the government. Who else can you trust if not them? But of course, the potential dystopian aspects to having things like your career, your access to healthcare and government benefits, your whole future in the system determined by a single score is obvious. Because who calculates the score? What goes into calculating the score? Remember all the furore lately about the personal data that Facebook has access to, the profiles they're building of you, the unaccountability of that system? At least that's only trying to manipulate you into buying stuff, or at worst, voting a particular way in an election. You're going to enjoy it so much more when those profiles determine how much society values you as an individual, what kind of schools you can get into, jobs you can have, even whether or not you can buy a plane ticket to leave the country. The algorithms involved in one case were criticised as being wildly arbitrary and unfair, and you can guarantee that pestering the authorities with questions about why your score is so low is only going to make it plunge all the further. Disadvantaged people are likely to remain disadvantaged under such a system. If you're having to work multiple jobs or you can't pay your bills or taxes on time, your score is likely to go down and stop you from getting employed in the future. So you have this entrenched inequality that's going on here. And meanwhile, how do they treat the philanthropic measures of the rich? I mean, if I donate £1,000 to charity, that's a huge fraction of my income. If Jeff Bezos does it, it's nothing. So how on earth are they assessing this sort of thing? Not to mention the ways in which we can be good and honourable people in undetectable ways without permanent surveillance of every aspect of our lives. Some systems that are trialled at the moment, they only deduct points for actually breaking the law. So you might argue that's not too dissimilar to current criminal records. But even current criminal records, there are grounds on which to criticise them. And you can imagine all kinds of dystopian ways the system could be actively abused or could end up being opaque, unaccountable. It's this kind of Kafkaesque society where you're barred from entry into certain things and you can never find out why, because no one actually knows why that is the case. And of course, in a state like China especially, there's an element where this is about maintaining social order and the status quo, and having a vast, oppressive, automated bureaucracy watch and judge your every move is likely to lead to some pretty disaffected people, trapped in these feedback loops due to their low social credit score. Exactly the kind of people, at the sharp end of a technologically entrenched inequality, who could unleash some of these catastrophic threats that we talked about. So you might be thinking that a social credit score system is unlikely to be implemented in your country, and you may be right. But in reality, it's just a particularly egregious example of things that are already happening to us in a widespread fashion. All of us, all of the information that we generate by using the internet, making purchases, or simply being alive, is being collected and used to profile us, sort us into categories. Machine learning is the only tool with the capacity to analyse this vast torrent of data. And so it is machine learning algorithms that determine how private agencies, such as credit rating agencies, view you. Some of the schemes in China are implemented by private companies and not officially sanctioned by the government. If such a scheme became influential, then, without needing any kind of state mandate, these algorithms could easily still affect your life. I mean, there's going to be private companies already that will run a sort of background check that will build profiles of individuals in this way. Don't you think that information that that company would generate might be of interest to future employers, or even 
future partners. One of the features that's present in the private use of social credit scores in China is the opt-in, thankfully, option to include it on your online dating profile. So you can say, look, I'm a good citizen, upstanding in society, and my credit score proves it. So combine this with other demographic trends in rich countries people are living longer. An increasing burden is going to be placed on a shrinking tax base to support the elderly population. A recent study said that due to the accumulation of wealth in older generations, millennials stand to inherit more than any previous generation, but it won't happen until they're in their 60s. Meanwhile, those with savings and capital will benefit as the economy shifts. If the stock market and GDP grow, but wages inequality fall, as tends to happen in stable equilibrium for markets, this is a situation that obviously favours people who are already wealthy. Even in the most dramatic AI scenarios, inequality can still be exacerbated. If someone develops a general intelligence that's near-human or superhuman, and they manage to control and monopolise it, then they'll instantly become wealthy and powerful. If the glorious technological future that Silicon Valley enthusiasts dream about is only going to serve to make these growing gaps wider and strengthen existing power structures, is it something worth striving for for everyone? And this ultimately is a problem with technological development as it is. When it occurs unevenly and ever more rapidly, the gaps between people who have access to that technology and those that don't only gets wider. The gap between someone with internet access and without is a vast sum of immediately accessible knowledge and information, a huge change in what you can do and achieve, as well as the number of videos of cats that you can watch. But the technological changes that many think may be about to come could make things even more uneven. People talk about longevity. Now that we can read the human genome and edit it with CRISPR, it may eventually be possible to control our futures through our genetics. Now, I should say that talking to some of the people like Britt Ray that I have done on this show has helped me to appreciate that a lot of the traits that people imagine altering, like intelligence, are extremely complicated and not controlled by a single gene. So we're, we're many, many years, perhaps decades off, and if it's even possible, to control a trait like intelligence through genetic modification. Um, we're in a state at the moment where we can almost read and write the language without understanding what any of the words mean. CRISPR, if it's used on humans, would likely start by eliminating medical conditions that can be traced back to a single gene or a couple of genes. But in the long run, it's hard to see how something like this doesn't get used to enhance humans or make us live longer. Other, more exotic technologies of this kind involve ideas like brain-computer interfaces, merging with machines allowing us to become more intelligent, attaining digital immortality with minds uploaded to the cloud or whatever. I'm not predicting that these technologies can or will be developed, and I'm certainly not predicting they'll arise anytime soon. But you can clearly see that if these kind of technologies do start to occur, the kind that involve accelerating our own evolution, what happens if they arise in an unequal society? They all act to entrench that inequality, to make it all the more permanent. We should be clear that equality in society is more about equal opportunities than mindlessly doling out the same wealth to every person. That's a common straw man that people use to try and argue against equality when they want to. But if the human race almost starts to split into two species where one set has access to medical technology that allows them to live twice as long, artificial intelligence enhancements and biological enhancements that allow them to be physically and mentally stronger, how is it possible to talk about equality in such a society. In many ways, this is already happening. Poverty is already exacerbated by effects like these. People who can't afford to eat properly, people who have to work ridiculous hours and can't get proper sleep, people who can't afford expensive health care, are going to suffer physically and mentally as a result compared to people who can afford all of those things. But these kind of technologies could make it exponentially worse by allowing a privileged few to shoot off into tech utopia and leave the rest of us behind. 
a division that Princeton geneticist Lee Silver describes as gen-rich and the naturals. What hope for any levelling then? That famous quote, you live in a utopia already, it just isn't yours. So what is the solution here? Well, I think it comes in redefining our notion of progress. Philosophers worry about an AI that is misaligned. The things that it seeks to maximise are not the things we want maximised. At the same time, we measure the development of our countries by GDP, not quality of life of the workers or equality of opportunity in the society. And we could do an entire other episode or series of episodes about why GDP is not necessarily the best thing to measure, and certainly not the only thing you should care about. So I want to say that growing wealth with increased inequality is not progress. And in fact, as the great leveller points out, growing wealth with increased inequality seems to lead, perhaps, to disaster, or at any rate, requires disaster so far to correct that inequality. Growing technological progress where the benefits and rewards of the technology are concentrated in the hands of a few is not the kind of thing that we want to aspire to, because it's inherently unstable more than anything else. Some people will take the position that there are always winners and losers in society, and that any attempt to redress the inequalities of our society will stifle economic growth and leave everyone worse off. And some will see this as an argument for a new economic model based around universal basic income. Now, any move towards this will need to take care that it's affordable and sustainable and doesn't lead towards an entrenched two-tier society. In the episodes we've done about the future of work, I talked about some of my scepticism about UBI as the solution. It's fascinating how this idea can be beloved of both people on the far left and people on the right too, which suggests that if it's defined vaguely enough, people can project their own dreams onto it. The left see it as a kind of crypto-communist utopia, and the right see it as an excuse to simplify the benefit system and the whole huge apparatus of government into a single streamlined payment. In fact, it was Richard Nixon's advisers who first came up with the idea of a UBI to replace all of the government benefits that existed at that time. The Nixon people actually got pretty close to enacting it. There was a lot of momentum behind the idea back in the 70s, and they even did a trial run in Denver, Colorado. They noted in the trial, despite their projections that people would take the money and work fewer hours or quit their job entirely, there was only a 9% reduction in working hours, hardly the death of all productivity, but the project was ultimately scuppered and not enacted. And while the idea certainly has some advantages, I'm suspicious both of the idea that a society will voluntarily implement it and of the fact that it can be regressive and not progressive, because you're giving the same amount of money to people of means than you are to people who have more needs than means. If you're giving the same amount of money to Bill Gates as you are to a single working mother of three, that's obviously not doing anything to address inequality. The idea of a UBI in most formulations is evoked alongside the idea of a robot jobs apocalypse, where all the jobs are automated and half the people end up unemployable then essentially the UBI rides in on a white horse to stop society from collapsing and saves us all from revolution and despair. But if this is your scenario, it's difficult to see how UBI doesn't just sustain a two-tier society. The people with the advantages who can get the skills they need to make money in the new economy, and a class of now unemployable people who are kept alive on this techno doll. The point in this society is not that the second group are lazy, but simply that in a technologically accelerated world, it's extremely difficult for them to catch up without support in place. And what can you do if only a small number of certain types of jobs still exist, which require years of experience? What if, say, the only jobs available required a PhD in mathematics? Is it really a level playing field, even if you have a UBI? The gap between those that depend on the UBI to live and those that don't could grow precipitously, and the policy itself does nothing to address inequality. If anything, people might take the attitude that once the UBI is in place, people have no right to demand anything else. This is not to say that there are no circumstances under which a UBI can be helpful. On the contrary, for the poorest it can be an incredible lifeline. 
It's Basic Income is a series of essays on the topic where I encountered a really interesting case study from India which was written up by Sarath Davala. So there have been plenty of different trial runs of UBI as you might expect, but this one really stood out for me. So it happened back in 2012. The participants were given 200 rupees a month. Uh, that's around £2.40 or $3 for the first 12 months, and then 300 rupees a month for the next five months. So in all, around 6,000 people were given the money at a cost of around £45 per person. So you might think that just giving £45 to 6,000 people is not going to have that much of an impact. After the money's taken away, things will return to normal, right? Well, the simple answer is that many people in extreme poverty are caught in a debt trap. This is actually a very extremely familiar situation from earlier in the history of many Western nations. In Victorian Britain, for example, lots of people who were in the workhouses were in a similar condition. Essentially, in many of these villages, there's one person who owns a lot more property than everyone else, and is usually a landlord for most people. So, say you fall on hard times, maybe the harvest fails, maybe someone falls sick and needs medical treatment or can't work, then you go to this landlord for a loan. Often, even to plant the crops that you need for the next year, you'll go to the rich person for a loan of seeds and fertiliser because you don't have enough money kicking around to buy all that stuff at once. The result is that you're really dependent on this one person. They can charge extortionate prices or offer loans with ridiculous rates of interest. In extreme cases, people will take out a loan with these individuals and be forced to work in a brick kiln simply to pay off the interest on the loan. It's a form of debt slavery. And if you're working two to three days a week to pay off a loan over years and years, and the other three or four days a week simply to get enough food to keep yourself and your family alive, you don't have any hope of self-improvement. And something very similar happened in Britain for a long time uh, with the workhouses where people would essentially owe a lot to the factory owner. Um, he would provide them with their accommodation, which was usually subpar, and also he would own the corner shop where they bought all of their stuff. And uh, this sort of continued for a very long time and became a huge problem until in the sort of turn of the 20th century, uh, the liberal governments at the time started to enact some basic social benefits that came in place there. Um, so this UBI, what does it do in this case in India? It breaks that dependence on the moneylender. And this means that it actually has a permanent effect even after the trial is ended. So before the trial, in one particular village, practically every family went to the landlord for food. And this was reduced to just five or six people out of a hundred when they came back four years after the trial had concluded. So by giving people this independence just for a few months with this money, many of them were able to move into more lucrative forms of work, less debt-focused, in better conditions. It's a permanent improvement in people's lives. So it's not just a case of give someone a fish and feed them for a day. It's more like giving people money and they have the free time to learn to fish. Generally, especially in the case of the very poor, and unlike traditional charitable giving, people are the best judge of exactly what they need to spend the money on, rather than what someone in a centralised bureaucracy might dream up for them to spend it on, which is what you get from a lot of traditional charitable giving. By providing just enough to help with the basic requirements of life, enough to help feed their families, this money actually brings options back to people's lives again. And I think this is really the ultimate dream of UBI enthusiasts, both as a way of charitably giving and as a way of improving living standards even more in wealthy nations and overcoming some of these issues surrounding automation. Because what you buy with it is the freedom to do as you want. And this is important in wealthy nations too. There's a widely cited survey from Gallup polling, the most recent one from 2018, found that 67% of workers in America were not engaged with the job they were doing, uh, while 18% were actively disengaged. Call me a starry-eyed idealist. But in these techno-utopias we dream up, where we've invented robots and artificial intelligence algorithms that can do most of the jobs of a human, 
It does seem like maybe we could dare to dream of a world where 85% of people don't basically dislike what they spend the vast majority of their lives doing. Isn't that the whole point of developing technology? We know that generally people do need to work, they need to have purpose in their lives. This comes out from social science study after social science study, which show that unsustained unemployment is bad for your health and especially bad for your mental health. The irony here is that there's no shortage of useful things that people could be doing if more menial and mundane tasks can be automated away. And I imagine that UBI advocates would also agree with Buckminster Fuller's famous quote. He said, quote, We should do away with this absolutely specious notion that everybody has to earn a living. It is a fact today that one in 10,000 of us can make a technological breakthrough capable of supporting all the rest. The youth today are absolutely right in recognising the nonsense of earning a living. We keep inventing jobs because of this false idea that everybody has to be employed at some kind of drudgery because, according to Malthusian Darwinian theory, he must justify his right to exist. So we have inspectors of inspectors and people making instruments for inspectors to inspect inspectors. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them they had to earn a living. Personally, even though I've read a bit about it, I don't think UBI is necessarily a panacea. I don't think there's any one solution to all of our problems. The main things I'd want to see are plans that explain how it actually adds up in practice, what people end up with, and the effects on society if it's deployed beyond a small group of people, and so on. To be sure, if UBI comes into the right environment, if it's sustainable and if it works, I can see some merit to the argument that it could be this safety net that allows people to do what they want with their time, and hopefully they'll end up doing a lot of productive things, and I think most people probably will. But uh, even for this to work, you need to demonstrate that the numbers add up to provide everyone with a UBI that matches the cost of living, which is notoriously difficult to determine, and you need to make sure there's systems in place as well that will actually allow people that progression towards something more fulfilling over time, which there might not be. There are all kinds of dystopian scenarios where the UBI ends up being too small and people have to supplement it by working, except now, with a UBI and far fewer jobs around, there's no pressure for the employer to pay a living wage, so unskilled people are stuck with truly lousy conditions. And bear in mind, you may think you're skilled today, and technological change can mean you're unskilled tomorrow. Combine this with the idea that some people are going to have access to the fruits of these incredible new technologies, while some may not, and you're back again to this two-tier society. You would need any such UBI to be implemented with a, a big, affordable, if not free, re-education system that would give people opportunities to retrain and get the jobs that they could, that are still available in the market at that point. I do have some sympathy for proponents of a UBI in this respect. Remembering this Walter Scheidel book, The Great Leveller, this eerie and depressing tendency throughout history for society to follow the same trajectory. Inequality creeps ever upward until some kind of disaster arises that levels people, but with a great deal of suffering. Because although you may view some level of inequality as desirable in a fair and dynamic society, keeping incentives in place for people to work and so on, there must come a point where it gets to be too much. Or is there? Maybe you don't think there is. If, if so, let me know. But if there is, then the Great Leveller thesis implies that the only way to get out of this is via some horrendous disaster, and we don't want that to happen. So if you're going to find some way out of that trap, then I think you need to think big. You need to have a vision for society that works differently. It doesn't have to be the UBI model, it doesn't have to be anything like it, necessarily. And perhaps the picture that the techno-utopians paint frays at the edges and falls apart under closer scrutiny. But coming up with that vision for how things might alternatively work is the first step. So far in this series, I've hopefully convinced you, if you didn't believe it already, that inequality is a huge problem, that it's likely to grow due to the influence of technology and the trajectory that we're all on at the moment, 
and that it could exacerbate all of these existential risks that we're concerned about. As power becomes more distributed, as it becomes possible for one person to have a huge impact on the rest of society. And I hope that I've demonstrated that it's a really difficult problem to solve, and that the historical solutions to growing inequality would either be catastrophic in themselves or simply don't work anymore. We need a new path, maybe a new economic model entirely, depending on who's right about the future of the work. But even then, we have to be wary about silver bullets like UBI that may or may not succeed. I want to finish off by convincing you that inequality in itself is a catastrophic risk for our species. We've touched on this already, but it feels really important. First, the definition of a global catastrophic risk is helpful. It needn't necessarily be apocalyptic. You don't need the world to end in the sense that everyone is killed. Nick Bostrom, who did kick off a lot of the academic research in this field after noticing there was more academic literature on the dung fly than there was on threats for human extinction, describes one type of risk as a shriek and would later use the term flawed realisation. So the idea here is that civilization is headed towards some kind of technological maturity, some kind of steady state like the one we described at the start of the series. The current phase of limitless exponential growth and rapid technological change is unsustainable. A better model for populations and maybe technological growth is the logistic curve. This is an S-shaped curve. It starts with exponential growth and then it peters out at some finite value when everything is saturated. And at that point, things reach equilibrium again. Perhaps by then we'll have all kinds of radical technologies, maybe AI, maybe nanofabricators, maybe humanoid robots, maybe biotechnology that's let us enhance ourselves, super intelligent, super strong, long-lived. It's difficult to know what technological maturity is going to look like. But if we're headed towards this inevitable post-everything world, what if it's a flawed, dismal realisation? The technology is developed, but in a bitter, wish-corrupting twist, society is ruined. Perhaps the technology is used to establish a totalitarian dictatorship, where the quality of life is grindingly low and there's no hope of escape. Perhaps humans have been replaced entirely by emotionless machines who value nothing, and so there's no hope or love or any of the things we might say we value in human society. But since we're at a steady state where the major forces of change have slowed down, it could be that we're in a dismal world that's almost permanently entrenched. The 21st century is terrifying because it holds such incredible risks, but with those risks, there's also the promise that things might be better, that we could be wiser and get this thing right. On the flip side of the coin, there are apocalyptic threats and dismal realisations. And I think this is one of the categories in which inequality is a global catastrophic risk. We have already seen that rich people can live longer and afford more technological enhancements to their quality of life, but old age, infirmity and death have always been the great levellers, inevitable for everyone. If instead our technology runs away and advances faster than our society, accelerating these great gulfs of inequality, then we would be living in a flawed realisation. Techno-optimists like Ray Kurzweil describe how these technologies would become the great levellers and that eventually everyone will transcend biology and become post-human. But similarly optimistic predictions about the technologies we have today haven't necessarily always come true. William Gibson, the author, put it best when he said that the future is already here, it's just not very evenly distributed. Four billion people don't have access to the internet decades after it was invented, and years after it became nearly ubiquitous in rich countries. We have the food to feed 10 billion if we want to, and we still can't end world hunger. People have predicted in the past that machines would allow us to have everything in abundance, and so there would be no need for inequality. People would just share what they didn't need. Well, that promise is as old as Keynes at the turns of the century, and it's been repeated often ever since. I was looking at predictions for 2020, as when I write this, we're reaching the end of 2019, and Time magazine of 1966 
thought that every American would be living on an income of around $300,000, with this relative wealth provided entirely by automated labour and the functioning of machines. It didn't happen. Maybe it was possible, but it didn't happen. Can we be certain that this time it will be different? In this case, for many, this is a dismal realisation. Accelerating away into the post-human world, we could divide into two groups whose lives are so substantially different that they may as well be different species. In some ways, you can argue that this has already happened just in the last few hundred years. For the chosen few, this is utopia, but for the rest of us, it could be a terrible system that is being perpetuated. I've spent an awful lot of time reading and writing about these catastrophic risks, but it's not for doomy gloomy purposes, even though I think we all secretly enjoy the vast scale, scope and drama of things that we're speculating about and describing here. Let's be very clear. The Great Leveller is not a totally deterministic guide to the human race through all of time. History is not deterministic, and deterministic theories of history do tend to get embarrassed by the facts. This was true of Marxism, which suggested all societies inevitably evolve towards communist utopia via the means of revolution. Hasn't really worked out yet. It was also true of Francis Fukuyama's belief, which to be fair he's now rejected, uh, that liberal democracy was the end state towards which everything would evolve. It certainly doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. Without determinism, we know that things may very well be different this time. Society has changed unimaginably, radically, over the last century, even over the last 20 years. So has technology. This will happen over the next century, even over the next decades. Black swans can happen, unforeseen things can happen. Past performance is not a flawless predictor of future results, even in how we respond to catastrophes that might occur. There's no historical determinism here. But we need to escape the trends and forces that seem to be dominating at the moment. In all of these risks, all of these fields, unfriendly AI, climate change, pandemics, global thermonuclear war, bioweapons, nanotechnology, and global inequality, we have the power to address them. These are problems that in some sense we have created, and by our actions continue to create every single day. We built them, and we can take them apart. But we have to be wiser, we have to be smarter, we have to find a better way of doing things and cooperating in a world where global issues do not stay local for very long in a world that's so interconnected that a problem in one region can become a problem for everyone, or that one person's actions can become an issue for the entire world. We have to concentrate on what each other has to say for longer than the length of a tweet, and we have to devote more of our resources to trying to foresee what might happen and addressing it before it does. In history, as in life, things aren't like the movies. If this was a Hollywood film, the moment the main character realised what the problem was and identified it, it would be pretty much instantly fixed. In reality, I think it's very rare that identifying our problems allows us to fix them so easily. Instead, figuring out what the problem is is just the start of an incredibly long, winding and difficult road towards solving it. This is an incredibly complex problem that is unlikely to have a simple solution, because complex problems almost never do. We have to find a way to be one of the only civilizations in all of human history to reverse this trend of increasing inequality without some violent catastrophe showing up. And that is a task of immense historic magnitude. But the more we talk about it, and the more we think about it, the more we prioritise it, the more likely we are to find a way. Thank you for listening to this series from Physical Attraction. I really hope that even if I stumbled around exploring this vast topic, you've all been thinking about it and you've come up with far better ideas than critiques than me. So let's make this a discussion. You can get in touch with me on the contact form via physicspodcast.com, follow us on Twitter, physicspod. If you want to do your bit to address the inequality between podcast host and listener, And if you've enjoyed the show, then please tell your friends about it and consider donating via the PayPal link or the Patreon on the website. Until next time, then, be kind to each other.